Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Doing very well. Doing very well. It's a little chilly outside, so the worm is uh, nestled far beneath the surface. <laughs> Hibernating, perhaps? Hi- yeah, no, he doesn't hibernate. The, the worm would never hibernate, but... No, that's a good point. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, so for this episode today, we have kind of a, a few pieces to this one. We uh, We first have... This brief clip, it's about a 10-minute clip that was taken at the Riverwalk Cafe in Nashua, New Hampshire, back in, I believe, I want to say April of 2019. That's correct. We sat on a science cafe panel in forensic science, and there's a link in the show notes to the video. There's two parts to it. 
But this is one 10-minute segment that we wanted to play on the airwaves because this was a moment where we actually got to question the people that we were on stage with, who includes FBI agents and people from the Nashua Police Department. Yeah, what a surreal moment that was. I, I think we might have briefly mentioned it in the past that it felt so uh, out-of-body experience-ish for us, at least for me. It's it's very rare that you are sitting there on a panel with, with people in the audience who want to hear not only what you say, but what their local police force says, expert opinions, and, and what you know federal agents say. And you're sitting yeah. there with them. Yeah. It, it was... To get over that part felt uh, felt a little bit rough, but I, th- I think we did handle ourselves as, as best we could. I think, I think we, we brought did. a little humor to the whole thing as well. Yeah, and we tried to ask some questions related to Maura Murray, so, uh, so that's what is in that clip, and we'll play that in just a minute. But we wanted to mention that the, the bulk of this episode is about a missing person named Deborah Mello. And we had a recent friend, a new friend, in here to the Crawl Space Studios. She's a family friend of the Mellows, and uh, or actually of of Deborah, I should say. Yeah, she's really good friends with Deborah's sister, Patty, and uh, her name's Shadia, and she comes from a film background, so she has a project that she's working on involving Deb's case, and she's getting information, and we'll we'll help her out with that. And as the information comes to her, we can uh, we can help her to disseminate that either on the show, or we could help her with her uh, her documentary project that she is in the really early stages of. And I believe Shadia and Patty have known each other over 20 years. So the second part of this episode, we're going to play the clip from from our conversation with Shadia. It's about 30 minutes or so. And then after that, we're going to revisit a segment from an episode that we did a few months ago with Marissa Jones of The Vanished Podcast, where we talked about Deborah Mello. And this was actually before we met Shadia. And uh, so we spoke about Deb Mello in that conversation. And that's maybe like 15 or 20 minutes. So we're going to plop that right in there at the end. And apologies if you've heard it before, but we wanted to keep... Uh, the same topic in the same episode, if that makes sense. Okay, so here is the clip from the forensic science panel up in Nashua, New Hampshire. I have one about uh, digital forensics, and uh, this is a question that we get a lot because Maura Murray went missing in 2004, and we know that the police have her hard drive or have it in her computer, and I think uh, gave the actual shell of the computer back, but held onto the hard drive. And so we've kind of inquired about what was on there and if we could help because we were contacted by some outside um, digital forensics people who wanted to help. But um, so I guess I guess my question is, what could have been there from from 2004? 2004, you would have seen um, you know the, the common apps. You would have seen. You're not going to see your social media like you saw now. Um, you're going to see the beginning of webmail. Uh, that type of stuff as far as, you know, what you're going to look for for communications and then even, you know, back to the late 1990s um, were the, you know, were the beginning of uh, your your instant messaging apps, your AOL, IM and all that kind of stuff. So those are the kind of things that, you know, I, I would I would think that they, they might be looking for as far as communications, emails, instant messaging uh, type stuff, the, the early days of that. But as far as you know, talk about the, the evidence itself, uh, that's pretty common that, you know, they, they would have maintained the hard drive as the original evidence, you know, the rest of the computer at this point in time really doesn't matter. It's the data on the hard drive that matters. Right. Um, so those are the type of things that, that that you would look for. But again, it depends on what she's doing. Was she a regular user? Did she have webmail accounts? Did she have 
instant messaging accounts. Yeah, yeah, she had instant messenger and she had done some searches about uh, some locations to stay at. And so that's kind of really all we know. Um, but I guess would the police have been able to get into all her email and instant messages? And how does that even, how do you even do that? So, yes, especially back uh, with the technology then too. Um, you know, obviously hard drives were, were a lot smaller then. So, um, you know, the, the way, you know, the magnetic hard drives would work um, is that when you, when you delete a file here, when you delete something, it's really not deleted. You know, with a magnetic hard drive, that's, that's really true because all that's happening, especially, you know, with a, with a Windows computer, uh, which I, I'm going to assume it was, it was a, it was a PC. Yeah. Okay. Um, with a Windows computer, pretty much it deletes, if you think about uh, a table of contents in a book and, you know, it says, hey, chapter one, go, go to this page, pretty much it deletes that pointer to wherever the data is, but the data still resides there on the hard drive until, you know, something else is written over it. So um, as far as recovering that data, that, that, that's a pretty simple process forensically. Um, there certainly wouldn't have been any encryption or anything like that at the time, but with smaller hard drives, you would see data uh, overwritten more frequently. Now we have, you know, 501 terabyte, you know, 500 gigabyte, one terabyte or, or larger hard drives all the time. So um, with magnetic hard drives, that's going to kind of stay there really long because there's plenty of hard drive to write to, not so much in 2004. So um, as stuff was written over, you'd lose that data forensically. Um, so that could be a reason why some older things might not have been located too. Yeah. I have a two-part question, starting with uh, Dr. Karagosian. Um, we we uh, look into Brianna Maitland's disappearance, and we know that there were some some samples taken from her car, and her car had, we weren't uh, specifically told what it was, but there was possible uh, DNA samples taken from the from the seat of the car. Uh, so I guess, like, how long would it have to go if someone were to go re-evaluate something to look for um, some, like, samples? And then what do you do with that after? So I guess whoever else could answer, like, the second part of the question, is there any, is there a period of time where you could say, like, this is just too old to look at? And then if it's not, where does it go from there? Do you identify people? Do are they brought in for questioning at that point? Most of, if not all, the evidence I'm collecting is is coming directly from the human body. And because, you know, as human beings, we do things like showering, et cetera, uh, there's a timeline that we are asked to work within for evidence collection. I'm, I'm not as familiar with what timelines are applied to something like the surface of a car seat, but presumably if the environment was protected and not interfered with, then I'm presuming you could probably get DNA for quite some time. I, I would have to defer to, I will defer. <laughs> yeah, so from a, from, a, from a crime scene processing perspective, um, it, it depends on, how, you know, what type of exposure, you know, that, you know, whatever you're going back to process um, has been, has been uh, exposed to. Um, so, if, if it's a vehicle, if it's, you know, if it's parked inside, if it's been in a garage, been environmentally controlled, um, it's been relatively well-maintained, um, you know, there's not any, you know, broken glass where the elements are coming in, uh, you're going to have a much better chance of recovering something like that. Um, DNA evidence certainly can degrade over time. So if, you're, if it's DNA evidence you're looking for, bodily fluids, blood, um, you know, the more time that passes, you know, the less chance you have of recovering something that you're going to be able to get a profile off of. But if it's something like, like hairs or fibers, um, something like that that's uh, that you're looking for um, and that's not being disturbed, you're going to have a much better chance of recovering that regardless of the amount of time that's passed. So if you were to recover something, is it within the law to 
and, and you're right to identify somebody, is it within the law to bring someone in to question them? So, you know, it all, it all depends on, you know, what, what type of case it is. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right to, to a homicide investigation. There is no statute of limitations. So if new information is developed, certainly, um, certainly investigation is going to go forward in, in, in whatever manner is going to be best. Um, you know, it may not be prudent right off the bat to go and, and, and bring somebody in, but it depends on, you know, where that, you know, where the testing of that evidence leads you to as far as the next step, the investigation. But uh, certainly for, you know, for an open investigation, uh, you're going to go in and, and proceed in whatever manner is best. This is a follow-up to the first question from, or one of the first questions from the gentleman over there who um, talked about Moore's case and when the FBI could get involved and our very uh, preliminary um, uh, knowledge of it is that, and I think you, you said it, is that uh, it, it needs to cross state lines. Moore's case wasn't a homicide. She's still missing. If they were to find something, she was from Massachusetts, missing in New Hampshire, uh, a, does that qualify? And B, if they were to find something like her cell phone in, say, Vermont, would that be a, a qualification for the FBI to get involved? Again, I don't know much about the case. I don't know nothing about the case, but I, I, I would guess it would. But again, it comes down to who's the primary investigator. Like, if National PD is investigating a homicide, uh, you know, National PD is going to run with that, or the state police is going to run with one in, say, Andover, New Hampshire. If they get to the point where they ask for our assistance, we'll step in. But um, we won't go into National PD's territory and start investigating homicides and overlap our work. We work together every week, every, pretty much every day. We're on the phone, phone with each other on other cases. And it's not, a, it's not a homicide, but let me give you an example of uh, a case I had in Miami that, for the interstate nexus. And it's not, it'll be a very simple case for you. So Cali Ocho, you know, a bunch of um, little seedy motels down in the Hialeah area right? Um, you can rent those things for dirt cheap. They were getting hit by uh, two bro uh, two cousins, the Rodriguez brothers, when I first got down to work in violent crime. And they weren't getting a lot of money. They're getting $250, $500 a hit. They maybe hit eight of them. Um, but it was, you know, Cagliocho, it changes jurisdictions every, like, mile, right? You got city of Miami, then you get Miami-Dade, then you have Hialeah. And uh, so all these jurisdictions were working these separate armed robberies. The key thing here is it was gun was used, right? So they came to us. No, normally, the local PD will handle the robberies in-house. But in this case, they came to us asking for our help. We had to find a way to get into that case. And we went with what's called a Hobbs Act. It's the interference with interstate commerce. And it may sound crazy to you, but what was our nexus to interstate commerce with all these little mom-and-pop uh, motels, like a, a bunch of you guys would be like um, from Nashville, maybe like the, these motels are like Lillian's and Country Barn, okay? Uh, they're not the Hampton Inn, all right? But in, in the front lobby of these places, they have a Coke machine. And guess what? Coca-Cola is bottled in Atlanta, Georgia. So... Our, our nexus, and the, they went with it, was these guys robbing these stores are taking money away from the business. That money that they're taking, some portion of it, maybe only $5, but some portion of it goes to buy Coca-Cola products to stock that machine. So now they don't have that money to buy product manufactured in Atlanta, Georgia. They're interfering with interstate commerce.
Get that? You follow me there? But here, here's, where, here's where it gets good, why they wanted the feds to do, to do this case, because the, on a Hobbs Act violation, on a case like this, first violation is a mandatory five years. Every subsequent violation is a minimum mandatory 20 years to run. They can't run concurrent. They have to be consecutive. So these guys do six robberies. The minimum mandatory going to trial if they're found guilty is 105 years federal time for a grand total of $3,000. So that's the way we did that case. That was our interstate nexus on that case because we could show that Coca-Cola was manufactured in Georgia and the candy bars sold in the machine with Hershey's manufactured in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Something like that is where we could, you know, uh, show interstate nexus. And we don't, you know, we go, go get an invoice from the owner saying, show me some invoices of the stuff you're buying, for, you know, the, the beer can you have. If you look at it, it's probably not bottled in New Hampshire, right? Uh, Budweiser's, and he's, uh, well, that will be here, right? But yeah, cor, cor, go get, I, I just take some pictures of Coors Light in the, in the cooler, whatever it may be. That's our interstate nexus. If the local PD needs our help, we'll, we're more than willing to help them out. But for us to take a case like a serious, we have to show that interstate nexus. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. And now we're talking about Deborah Mello, missing person from Massachusetts. And here is the clip with family friend of Deborah, Shadia. All right, welcome to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. We are here with a friend of Deb Mello's family, Shadia. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us out here in uh, the comfy confines of the Crawl Space Studios. You knew uh, Deb Mello and your friends with uh deb's sister correct patricia correct okay i knew of the case and i was friends with actually patty with patty Mm -hmm. okay and i'm sure there's a a few people out there still who are not familiar with who debbie mellow is correct yeah what what's uh why are we talking about debbie mellow um because she was a woman who was married and had children and she went missing in 2000 so and it was a big case back then mm-hmm. um, because she just vanished off mm-hmm. the face of the earth and they can't find her. Yeah, so June 20th, 2000, she went missing from Weymouth, Massachusetts. Uh, she's white. She's a woman, obviously. Her date of birth is October 17th, 1969. She was 30 when she went missing. 5'3", 114 pounds, was wearing a white shirt, a blue sundress with white flowers had a diamond ring and a ring with the name Deborah on her index finger. And that is uh, information from the Charlie Project. So shout out Charlie Project. Uh, brown hair, blue eyes. Deborah had a rose with the name Louie tattooed on her right shoulder. And Louie is her husband. Is her husband. Is mm-hmm. still, they're still, I guess, legally married? Uh, I guess you would say that, absolutely, yeah. even though he's remarried now. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, not to get too far down that that hole yet. Um, we were uh, we were recently speaking with Marissa from The Vanish, and she covered this case as well. So, shout out to Marissa at uh, The Vanish. She did a really good job speaking with uh, people involved with uh, Debbie's case and w- with her life. She spoke with uh, with Patty, her sister. So, um, we we want to uh, just keep this in the uh, public spotlight uh, as much as we can. Um, but. Uh, can you explain to me the area in which she went missing geographically? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, Route 18, 
um, where I come from, Bridgewater, um, it starts, to me, Route 18 is right there. And as you go up, the South Shore Hospital is there. Um, there's so many places of restaurants and um, plazas and everything. There's so many people on that road and so many things that it just amazes me. It amazes you that she could have gone missing from that area. So the day she went missing, she was with Louie, her husband, in the car. What brought them to that area in the first place? Um, they had gone to a doctor's appointment, mm-hmm. um, and the doctor's office verifies that, and so does in her sister, mm-hmm. because she called her sister, too. They were talking, I think. And she called her on the way back or the way to the doctor's uh, Way to or way... I don't know for sure mm-hmm. if it was the way to or the way after. Okay. And then afterwards, apparently, there, there was uh, an argument, or that's uh, that's what Louis said? I have information from Patty herself, um, just talking to her, and uh, uh, I, I don't want to quote anybody or whatever. This is what I remember when I was talking to her, and she was giving me some information because I did ask her questions, um, was that she was having a discussion with Louis about finances, and they were just getting into arguments with each other and that's when started to es- things started to escalate escalate and then um she wanted to be let out of the car right there on route 18 right there on route 18 which you just said is a pretty busy uh main uh correct pass through town correct okay and this is weymouth or is yeah this, this is weymouth, weymouth. okay and, and this is from louis right this is louis story that they got into an argument she asked to be let out i it's gonna have to be i think so right absolutely um, because she didn't bring her purse with her. Correct. Who who gets out of a car without their identification, purse, wallet, money? And how far did that argument escalate? To to you know, if you're getting out of the car with no no belongings, mm-hmm. that must have been a pretty significant argument. I don't want to speculate on that, but I'm just trying to put the pieces together. Correct. I'm, I don't want to speculate either, but um, I did hear something about having to do with finances or whatever. Yep. So sometimes I guess yeah, things escalate to So how far away from the doctor's appointment was the point in which he claimed that she left the car? Um to tell you the truth I don't know. I don't know that answer. Okay. The story that I heard from uh Marissa's show The Vanished um which is excellent uh was that they got into an argument over some of the cream that Deb apparently wanted to buy or or did buy at this dermatologist's office understood and um apparently based on I think Louie's account mm-hmm. is that he was saying we didn't have the money for that and she got all upset and asked to leave but again that the only person who I believe can give that account is Louie mm-hmm. um so then what he says is that he let her out of the car. Again, no purse. Yeah. Um, and then he drove down the road. Correct. That's what I'm, um, I think Patty had told me also. But I also think Patty knew more, too, because she did have direct contact with her sister. They talked all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, they were they're, close. They were very close. Yeah. Okay. But, but so then Louie said he, he let her out of the car drove about a mile down the road, turned around, I guess changed his mind in mm-hmm. his story, and then turned back and and drove back to where he let her out of the, you know, allegedly let her out of the car, and she wasn't there. Correct. So that's the official story, and he says he's never seen her again, and then he went home to his kids, their kids. Correct. Um, 
said he's going to bring them a pizza, which he did. Yep. And uh, and then he was gone for about five hours. And he said he was looking. He told the police he was looking in for for Deb in Weymouth, around where he let her out of the car. However, the cell phone pings show that he was in the town of Taunton, which is not even next to Weymouth. What would what would have put him in Taunton? And what's the geography there? How far away from Taunton uh, is Weymouth? Um, a good, I'd say a good. 25 minutes okay. something like that it, it could be more because on route 18 there's tons of lights and traffic lights traffic lights yep. so it's it's a it's like the back roads to going into boston yeah okay oh yeah okay um yeah it's actually 35 miles 35 miles from weymouth yeah. to taunton yes yeah so it's yeah, now you're talking that's 40 minutes to an hour. Maybe. Yeah, so because when I first heard that, I was wondering why the cell phone ping actually distinguished the difference. But now you you can see why, because there are several towers <laughs> right. on the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did he, do we know if he let her out at, a, at one of those lights? He must have, right? I mean, she didn't get out of the moving car. He didn't let her out of the car. <laughs> no, he says that he let her out of the car. That's what he says. Right. Yeah. Was it ever clarified that he said we were stopped at a traffic light? Uh, not that I know of. Not okay. I don't have that information. All right. And this is a, a time of day in June that I'm sure it was uh, still light outside. Correct. I think it was a sunny day and it was like around three or four o'clock sure. in the afternoon. Great. And no one saw, no one has any account of, of her. No. And that's, okay. I think, the sad part. That is a, yeah, that is absolutely the sad part. Uh, and I'm sorry to reiterate stuff. I just want to get it straight. And I was, I feel like I was doing this when we talked to Marissa as well. Um, he, his, his story is that they leave this doctor's appointment and she, they get into an argument so bad that she gets out of the car without her stuff, not like, not, not, not going to any particular destination. Just, I need to get out of the car. He continues on. And then after about a mile, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to try to find her because this is this is silly correct and then he doesn't find her then he goes back home and his story is to tell his kids that he's going to get them a pizza and maybe he's maybe his story is that i'm i'm just i don't want to tell them that their mother's i can't find their, their mother i believe that's what happened they asked where's mom and yeah. he said i gotta go look for her she got out of the car and uh so he he left got a pizza brought right. it back gave it to them and then was gone for about five hours and then was not forthcoming with where he or lied. Yeah. Based on the the cell phone. What was the uh what was their family like? Like the family dynamic? They were close family, very close family. Yeah. Um uh always kept in touch with each other. Yeah. Um even the kids and everything cuz they um Patty had ki- has kids also. Mm-hmm. So they um have family outings and everything like that. So they were very close. And they all lived in the same... Same vicinity. Vicinity, same, okay. In the area okay. with each other. And at at any point, were there any uh, moments where someone in the family, like maybe one of Deb's siblings, had an issue with, you know, their life and then... And then they they reached out to each other. I mean, are, were they were they to the point where, you know, they were secretive about stuff like that? Or did they... Did they lean on each other? I can remember Patty telling me, yes, they were, uh, Deb was secretive about some things about Louis. And Deb can, I mean, uh, Patty can tell you tons of um, information about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Deb would tell her things about their 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 marriage and everything like that. 
Yeah, so apparently at the time Deb went missing, she was considering divorce and had been talking about uh, correct getting divorced with some of her sisters and uh, I think friends too. Yes. How long uh, had they been together and when did they meet? And did you ever meet him? I'm sorry, that was rapid fire question. Mm, no, that's fine. I've never met him, um, but I think they were together. They were kind of, I think, uh, sweethearts, uh, childhood mm-hmm. sweethearts. They knew okay. each other from high school or elementary school or something like that. So about 15 years, I think, is the math then, because Deb was um, 30 when she went missing, and and they met when she was about 14. So yeah, that's a pretty long time. What grade are you in when you're 14? Sixth, seventh? Seventh, I think. Yeah, that's like eighth, maybe. Yeah, seventh or eighth. And not uh, high school. Yeah, maybe maybe freshman year. It could be. Yeah, 15. I think is freshman. freshman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think there was some, he definitely was, showed interest in her from an early age. I think even it needed to get, uh, Deb's mom's permission mm-hmm. to, uh, go out with her and, uh, eventually marry her. What was the difference in age? So I think it was about five years. So I think he was somewhere in the 18 or 19 range when she was 14, 15. Okay. So you, you never, you never met him. I never met him. And, um, I think Deb was older than I was, so I didn't really get to meet her, um, but again, like I said, Patty, I know Patty very well. So what was, uh, Patty's opinion of Deb's husband, Louie? She didn't like him. She doesn't, she didn't, she said she really didn't like him. From when? She was a kid. From when they started dating, mm-hmm. she never had a, a good opinion of him? Not that I remember her telling me, no, she's. Why not? Um, I think cause the things. She used to see with her sister, with them going out, um, and also some of the things that um, when they were in uh, school together that um, Louis would do to her. Um, and I'm sure when you talk to her, she'll tell you even more mm-hmm. some of the stories. Like what What were some of the things that he would do to her? I think like pick on her or okay. try to... Uh, get with her and when and she would be like no you're with my sister or you know stop being an idiot <laughs> so you'd flirt with her yeah flirt okay. with her maybe now i'm uh i'm assuming that louis has been questioned for this i mean we've looked into this we know that he's been questioned. i think he has yes yeah. absolutely and where's his uh what's 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 his his stance now where is he well um all i know um, is that he, I don't think he'll answer any questions about this case. Um, I know that um, out of the things I've heard, he really doesn't search, won't search for anything, won't come out to. Um, they have yearly, like... Um, vigils. Vigils for her. Um, and he doesn't come to those. He got remarried right after this all happened. Just odd circumstances everywhere. So, yeah, it says here on the Charlie Project that he's not considered an official uh, suspect by the police, but they have publicly wondered why he does not take a more active role in looking for her. He also um, didn't report her missing right away, waited at least a day. I think there's some conjecture on exactly how long he waited. Um, And then did he also fail a lie detector test? Yes, he did. And it's right there in the records and... He failed the lie detector test, so. Okay. What were the two of them like uh, professionally? Where did they work, and did they? I think uh, what I know is that they worked at a Dunkin' Donuts, I think in Hingham area. Um, they were both managers of it. 
Um, and I think he still works there. Still managing the Dunkin' Donuts. Correct. Okay. And still lives in the house that... That they lived in before? Before, correct. Oh, no kidding. And that's in, in Taunton? Taunton. Okay. Yes. Now, do you remember where you were at when you found out about her disappearance? I don't. What about when uh, you heard about it? Did you hear about it through Patty? No, I heard it through my family members because I know it was... I don't know, like, specifics, but I know back then it was such a big case because mm. it was... Because ours is... It's such a small town where I live in Bridgewater, and it's next to Taunton mm-hmm. and Rainham and everything. Um, so everybody talks about everyone, you know, yeah. on the surrounding areas. What do people talk about when they talk about this case? How it's never, nothing ever comes to fruition or finding anything about her or her body or anything. It's just, or how, she would never leave her kids. She would never leave her family, all that stuff, how it's just so amazing that, that nothing has come out and how they can't find anything. Did you hear anything about any sort of abuse that she suffered from uh, yes. her husband? Yeah, they were it was, they were in conflict with each other all the time. I guess he was, um, she did have a restraining order out on him. She did, yeah, I think it was like about four years before mm-hmm. um, her disappearance. You seemed a little at a loss for a, for a word. Was he was he um, I can't was he think possessive? Of a... Was he jealous? Yes, that okay. w- he was possessive. Mm-hmm. W- what I've been told. Yeah. Um, very jealous person. Um, he had anger problems. I think uh, somebody had said also. Okay. Seemed like he also tried to isolate Deb a little bit with um, particular being Correct. particularly mean to some of her friends and family um, and trying to really trying to turn. Uh, her against them i think mm-hmm. right and uh you uh do in the professional world you're in the uh movie production business correct and you uh came onto the radar because you are considering doing a uh, documentary about about deb's case correct correct, okay. correct. and uh what what have you come up with or how how deep into your uh production or pre-production are you with that, with that? I've come to the point where there's so many things that you can pinpoint and go see and talk to this because there's a wealth of knowledge out there and people who want to come forward and talk about the case and get more people involved so mm-hmm. we can do more research for it. Mm-hmm. So, And what kind of access has have you been given by police and by family? Well, um, I haven't gone to the police yet or anything like that, but um, I know that I could get a lot of access because of the family members that I do know Mm -hmm. that are forthcoming Mm -hmm. and willing to talk about this case. Right. Which is that pretty much every family member except for one? Correct. Okay. Even the children would want to talk about it. Okay. And what, what are the children like now? Uh, what's their, how old are they now? Ooh, um, they, they are old. I think they're in the twenties. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, are they, are they heavily active in, in um, yeah, they'll, yeah, they tr- they go out and do the vigils and they help out all yep. they can. Yeah, they want to know where their mother is. Yeah. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. 
Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And her, and her body's never been found. There's never been any um, sighting of her that, um, that you know of? That I know of? I, mm, I, I can't say for sure, but I know yeah. that um, a couple of years ago they did a... They thought they had found some something in Taunton, and they went to somebody's backyard to to investigate and yep. used backhoes and whatever, but nothing ever came to fruition. Yeah, I've got, got the article up right here. Um, seems in August of 2017, they dug up a front lawn in Taunton, uh, but apparently did not find anything. But it, it was uh, it was stated by. Um, I believe Deb's brother mm-hmm. uh, or brother-in-law that um, that that dig was specifically for Deborah. Mm-hmm. Correct. So this was a piece of information that came to them, like a tip. I don't think police have put that? it out there on okay. what what their information was. Yeah, what it was from. It's apparently still hushed. Um, even still, uh, they, they didn't talk about what they found, but uh, you'd have to imagine they didn't find any evidence of uh, of Deborah. Obviously, correct. Um, yeah, I'm also looking at a uh, an article. Uh, just want to clarify that at uh, this point, her kids would be into their 30s because we're going on oh, 20 okay. years. Oh, so wow. one of them would be uh, 30, and I think the other one's just over 30, like 32 or 33. Okay. Um, and where do you plan on going with with your research? Because I know you you're super early on in it. Very early on in this. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, we 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 look into Maura Murray's disappearance, obviously. Correct. And this is about as dissimilar from Maura Murray's disappearance as mm-hmm. possible, because that's uh, you know an abandoned car. She was alone. Uh, she's far removed physically mm-hmm. from anybody that that could have been looked at as a potential suspect. Um, Correct. Traditionally. Mm-hmm. Like if if anything bad happened to her because they still don't know where her where she is. So, you know, you typically look at at the husband or the boyfriend or Correct. someone in the family and then yeah, you, then you, don't you move go out from there. Yeah. This is so uh opposite of that. Mm-hmm. She was in the car with her husband with Correct. a history of, exactly. of abuse and then left the car mm-hmm. according to him, the only person who saw her. And I think it's uh I think that's uh particularly telling that he now does not speak to anybody about this. Um, I would say. Yeah, and, very and telling. We were, we were talking earlier that that he's got some sort of a restraining order on or some sort of... I don't uh, know what it's called. Gag but order. Something of that sort that... You're not allowed to, to talk go to him. talk to him about it because okay. he doesn't want to talk to him and you got some... I would want to talk to him, even if he said no. Like, no, that's... All right, that's an answer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it would be fascinating to to actually hear him talk about it. I, um, you know, we we usually don't point fingers on these shows. We try not to, um, but this one, you know, it seems really obvious. Like it's uh, kind of hard to happened. talk around it. You yeah. know, it's it's hard to 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 have a conversation. I mean, I can even tell like with with, with your answers that it's like, well, why would I even like consider, consider somebody else? I know it's that. You know, it's. I know well, it's hard for me to even say things like that too yeah. because I don't like being judgmental. Yeah, and not giving everybody a chance. But when you don't talk, investigators stated that that Louis's behavior and attitude was not consistent with that of a grieving husband. Um, again, that plus 
failing a lie detector test does not make someone guilty. Um, but when you throw a lot of the other factors in too, like he was the last person to see her, he has this account that cannot be verified by anyone. Why did she not take her phone? Why was he lying about where his cell phones, his cell phone was pinging? Right. And what then was the he really doing? There's restraining orders, and then she took it back, which is fine, and I understand that. It happens all the time. But also yeah. his his wife that he had now back in the day had it got a restraining order on him too. And then she recanted it also. So it's just makes no sense. These stories that I've heard, um, again, need to be verified with the family members and everything like that. Cause they can tell you more of the story, but things I've heard, I'm just like, it makes no sense. His, his current wife had a restraining order. order yeah. On him wanted well. to, yeah. Something of that sort. Okay. So, I mean, okay. So yeah, we can't really verify that until we talk to the family members, but but the fact that there is a story out there, I mean, that, where did that come from? That came from somewhere. Even if she didn't get a restraining order, she told somebody at some point. And that's why that, I want to do a documentary because yeah. there's so many stories out there that people could make up their own mind and maybe get something else to help find or go on a search or just because you always need need help doing this stuff, researching and stuff like that. So that's why... Uh, Part of me wants to do the documentary to help out. Yeah, I, I think that would be welcome um, I, as far as help goes. Um, and I, I don't think police are even really still commenting on it. Um, I think it is still an open investigation. Obviously, they were doing work on it as recently as two years ago. So there is uh, some hope, I would say, in the case. Um, yes. I think it, it sounds like there's been... There's been locations, at least a matter of miles, that had been sort of numbered down, right? It, Correct, yes. Like, then, she can't be in Canada. She can't be in Florida. You know, there's a right. lot of places that she can't be. Right, because it just doesn't make sense. And I mean, I think they've done their research on that part. She's somewhere. Isn't it uh, kind of brazen for her husband to still be in the area, in the house, like why would he? Why Still would he working st- at the same st- Dunkin' Donuts? Working at the same Dunkin' Donuts. Why would he continue to be in the same spot if he realizes that this behavior is so? I odd don't know. People are looking at. I, him like I don't this. know. Other than I would feel so guilty being in the same house, not being, not looking for, her, not working the same place. I don't know. I just feel so. That's just me and as a person because. Well, I think I think that's most people. Yeah, you know, but but also. You know, uh, we don't we don't know what happened, but I mean, in the in the scenario, if you were overridden with guilt, you know that that would be that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you'd get yourself into that situation. You right, know? right. It's really, uh, really a tough one to, like you said, Lance, talk around without just <laughs> pointing fingers at this guy. It is tough because it is tough. Ha- has there ever been another? suspect it's even hard to say suspect because her body hasn't been found no i mean i, I think he was the guy from day day two mm-hmm. you know which yeah. we, i would say day one but she wasn't uh considered Reported. missing until yeah. uh until a day or two later so you know there's this whole uh rumor or well it's not a rumor that there was an incinerator behind the dunkin donuts that he worked at but there is that uh something that that, that has been checked out um what's the thoughts on that if I'm remembering correctly, I think there was an incinerator and they did check it out and they didn't find anything. How much does an incinerator burn? 
That I don't know. I'm not an expert yeah, in that, that one. Does that burn bones? <laughs> I have no clue. Yeah. Um, they also did some some forensic testing in the car that uh, that they were both in, Louis and Deb, and uh, found no signs of struggle or anything like that uh, forensically inside the car. Correct. And was this his car or her car? Oh, geez. It was actually her car. It was her car. Yeah. Okay. And no signs of struggle, and, and he's... Is the car still around? Uh, no, the car is not around. I think uh, they sold it. As far as like family advocates go, who's the biggest family advocate? Like if someone were to... Stephen DeMora. Stephen DeMora? Yes, he's Patty's uh, ex-husband. And he was the uh, representative for them when Deb went missing. And they were married at the time, Patty and Stephen. Correct. They were married in, in 2000. Correct. They were okay. married at the time. Yeah. And and so Stephen, uh, I'm assuming, knew would, Louis. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yep. And he would be, I think he, he told me he would definitely be willing, and Patty told me he'd definitely be willing to talk. Okay, and now here is a revisit from our episode with Marissa Jones of The Vanished where we talked about Deb Mello and Amy Shear. Here is the clip about Deborah Mello. It'll take us through the rest of this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. And Marissa, of course, you host The Vanished Podcast, and you speak about missing people, and we wanted to discuss a couple of um, recent cases that you covered, and one of them specifically uh, has to do with this local area, Deb- Deborah Mello, one that's close to close to uh, close to us, really, like close to our our hearts for the most part. We're very familiar with this, and we're really happy that you're covering this. Yes, so I covered her case a couple a couple months ago. I think it was either at the end of 2018 or the beginning of 2019. Her brother-in-law contacted me. Now he was her brother-in-law at the time. He's since. Uh, divorced. Uh, he and Deborah's sister have since divorced. I guess I should say it that way. But he, from the very very start, was just dedicated to the cause of finding Deborah. Uh, when you talk to people who knew Deborah, you could tell that she was just such a wonderful person. Uh, there was just people lining up to be interviewed for her episode because they loved her so much and, and missed her so much and. I believe that she was godmother to their children, his, her sister and uh, brother-in-law's children. So from the very beginning, he kind of stepped up. And even though he and her sister have since divorced, he still is very dedicated to finding her. And he's kind of uh, a bit of the family spokesperson, if you will. So he contacted us and we started doing interviews and we spoke to him, her sister, actually two sisters, her sister-in-law, and her friend. And it was really one of those cases where you got a good feel for who she was because everybody just had so many wonderful memories of her to share. And you could tell that she just was there for people in her life. She was present in the lives of those around her. She, she was, her, her being gone, it has been devastating for them. So that's where I started with her case. 
Now, she disappeared in 2000 from Weymouth, but she's from Taunton. So her husband uh, took her up to a dermatologist appointment where she bought some products. So she had like a bag of products from her appointment. And he says that they start driving home and they get into an argument on Route 18 and that she gets out and leaves her purse and the bag of things that she bought at the doctor's office behind. Now, one thing that listeners pointed out is that no woman gets out of the car and storms off without a purse. Now, Deborah didn't have a cell phone. This was back in 2000. Not everybody had one. And if she was going to call somebody, she would have needed to call somebody to get a ride from there back home. She wouldn't have left her purse and had no way to, you know, use a payphone. So that is suspicious within itself. Louis, her husband, goes home, gets a pizza for their kids. They have two kids. And then leaves and is gone for hours saying that he's looking for her. And that's the only time that he's ever looked for her since she disappeared. Here's a clip that Marissa pulled for us from her episode. This is Deb's friend, Lori. He was always looking for her. So if she had, if she would go out, say her and I, a lot of times we would go to Dunkin' Donuts and we would sit in the parking lot and just sit in the car drinking iced coffees and just chit-chatting. A lot of the times we would have our daughters with us and we would just, they would hang out. They were cousins, of course, and we would talk and just talk. We would see him drive by. And then a little while later, we'd see him drive by again. And we would make jokes about it because we knew like he was just making sure she was where she said she was going to be. Same thing if we would go out and it started to get late. All of a sudden, he would be looking for her. He would be knocking on people's doors that she knew and things like that looking for her. But it was very strange to me that when she went missing, he wasn't out looking because he was always looking for her. So the weekend before she went missing, we had gone out and we were in separate vehicles, but we met at the same place. And she had a friend with her and I had friends and we were just all together at the same place. I left in my car to go home. She left with her friend in her car to go home. All of a sudden, I find out that he was out looking for her and he was knocking on the girl's door. And I'm, I'm not sure what the girl's name was, but he, he was knocking on her door wee hours of the morning looking for Deb and telling her that she better get home and that, you know, she had no business being there and that kind of stuff. And she had ended up going home. Then it was... Uh, like one, uh, just a couple of days, a few days, that was probably a Friday or Saturday night. So then it was just that few days later that all of a sudden they had an argument and she was missing. And then he went, went home, went to work the next morning, worked all day, went back home and never looked for her. No. Yeah. How old are the kids? Uh, They were younger. I forget exact their exact ages right now, but they, they were... They weren't little, little kids, but um, they were old enough that the, the daughter was old enough to stay home with the son. So I think that she may have been like 13 or something, and he was a few years younger. I forget off the top of my head their exact ages at the time. Now, they're both grown, 
And we contacted them to do an interview and they both declined. And it's one of those situations where they've lost one parent, then they were raised by the other parent. And I think they're in a situation where they don't want to lose both parents because they don't know for sure that he's the one responsible for her disappearance. So it's a tough situation when children when children are in that that kind of thing with trying you know having to side with one parent when they don't know what happened to the other yeah and getting any sort of uh, media attention whether it's a a podcast or a dateline or one of those Mm -hmm. i can't imagine what you would do as an adult now 19 years later you were 12 and 13 at the time like what do you you look at your life and then you think about the repercussions that could happen Mm-hmm. And it's like, what's what do you weigh the? How do you yeah. weigh those options? It's it must be impossible. Look at Sarah Turney. She uh, she's kind of doing that, and she you know of course her sister Alyssa Turney went missing, but um you know she's she's lost contact with her siblings um, because of the uh, the media pressure she's put on her sister's case and her dad. Yeah, and that that's that's crazy because they, it's crazy to think about how people value the normalcy of having a parent over mm-hmm. what could possibly be justice. And in, yeah. in Sarah's case, that's what her siblings are doing. They, they would prefer to have a Thanksgiving with their dad, as opposed to finding out the horrible, what could be the horrible truth. And I'm sure yeah. it's similar in this case. Yeah. And I've seen uh, cases where there's been one sibling on one side and one on the other but they just don't talk about the case with each other because they want to maintain a relationship. It's it's really difficult for people. Yeah, we see it with uh, Curtis Murray and Mora and how a lot of people who have never had anything like this happen, maybe they've had a little bit of tragedy, but nothing to this extent. They think if this happened to my sister, I wouldn't stop. I would I would take every interview. I would do every everything that comes down the line to get the name out there and Curtis summed it up really simply and said I was 13 I I was going to a new school I was uh you know I was I was being a teenager yeah. and I didn't really get it it's a little it's mm-hmm. a lot easier said than done yeah it's a, and and to say like you you can instantly process that is I mean, everyone, everyone's different. There's no way to say, well, here's your, here's your blueprint on how to, how to deal with your missing sister or mother. Yeah, we say a lot. There's no handbook. Right. But there should be. There, there, there should be, and maybe some of these episodes that, that you're doing, Marissa, and maybe some of these uh, Missing More Murray episodes, hopefully somebody can take something from it and, and, you know, a little bit from here and a little bit from there and put it together for their own situation. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I have a question about the argument in the car. Did he ever say anything about uh, she left her purse behind because their argument was so uh, was so intense that she just needed to get out of the car and she just took off and didn't think about it? Or was it sort of a forgetful thing? I don't think he's ever said why on that. But he did say that they were arguing over money, over the cost of the products that she bought at the der- dermatologist's office. So, and after that, he's really kind of shut himself off. He doesn't talk about her case. And when the media would try to approach him, he would just fly off the handle. And he's been 
been very difficult to deal with. I mean, he didn't even report her missing um, initially for days on end. And he did some weird things like he told. Okay, so Deborah and her husband, Louie, both worked at uh, Dunkin Donuts. She ran the front end and he ran the back. Right. So he was doing the cooking and she was running the, the front and he told people that their coworkers that she was just homesick, that she wasn't missing. And so when Deborah's sister went in to ask if they could put up missing persons posters, the person working there said, she's not missing. Louie told us that she's just homesick. And the other weird thing is that her friends and sisters said that if she would ever come out with them to go get a drink or go dancing or go have coffee or whatever, that Louis would follow her and they would see him. Like they used to, uh, her one friend said they would sit in the car and drink coffee and chit chat and gossip. And they would see him like coming around the block watching her and all this stuff. That's so creepy. And, yeah. And they would just like make jokes about it. Like, oh, there's Louie again. And other times, like when she would be out dancing or say she went to a concert with her sister, these were all examples, that he would be going around knocking on doors of the people she you know, was out with, seeing if she was there and just would hunt her down to see who she was with, what she was doing. But then she goes missing, and he doesn't even bother to look for her. Oh, man. So so he waited how long before reporting her missing? It was several days because uh, her sister thought that he had reported her missing, and then she found out that he hadn't. And she then called him and was like, what are you doing? You need to report her missing. And the police initially, you know, when, when they talked to him, they looked at his car, that kind of thing. And they started chasing down all these leads, like, that she was in, you know, like, the trash dump where she was here, she was there, she had been incinerated in this trash place, and they were never able to find anything. I think that the big question is, where was he for those several hours after he told his kids that he was going to look for her? And they were able to they were he said that he was in Weymouth looking for her but he had a cell phone she didn't he had a cell phone and they were able to determine that he was in Taunton the whole time that he said he had been in Weymouth so that's based off of uh, him making phone calls or it's based off of the GPS on the cell phone I think it's based off of uh, him uh, cell phone pings. Okay. Now I don't know what that would have been, looked like exactly in 2000. Right. But that's what her family was told by the police back then. You said that they both worked at a local Dunkin' Donuts. Do you happen to know the name of the town that the Dunkin' Donuts was in? No, I believe it was in Taunton, but I could be wrong. I don't know exactly which location, and even if it's still there, but I believe that he does still work for Dunkin' Donuts, so it's, he probably still works at the same one since they're franchises. And he, you know, the, the other thing that was strange that he did right after she went missing was that he cleaned out all of her stuff and 
you know, told the kids that she wasn't coming back. And it just seems like he knew from early on that she wasn't coming back. And he has a history of this controlling behavior. He would say things like, if I can't have you, nobody will. And Deborah had been talking to people saying that she wanted to get a divorce. And we know that when a woman is leaving a relationship, it's the most dangerous time. And apparently they had talked about this divorce. This is from people she had told about the conversation. They had talked about it and she said that she was giving him a certain amount of time to change, get himself together, whatever. And if things weren't better by that period of time that she was going to leave. And her one sister lives in Hawaii. And she even said, why don't you just get the kids and fly out here and you can do the divorce from here. And, you know, I'll, I just want you to be safe. And apparently she had been considering it, but she didn't have solid plans that anybody knows of. So we don't know if, you know, she could have told him in the car that day that, yes, she wants to proceed with a divorce. They could have just had a fight. Who knows? But she was taking those steps and telling people that she was taking those steps to end the relationship. His behavior towards her was so uh, volatile that her sister volunteered her to come stay with her that everyone in the family knew how sort of um, knew his, his potential for his temper. Yeah. And her sister talked about a time early on, early on in the, their relationship where Deborah was pregnant with the daughter. Now, let me add that Deborah was very young when she got married. She was 16 and her mom had to sign something for her to be able to get married. And, so she was young and then she was young when her kids were born, obviously. And she, uh, the, her sister talked about a time when Deborah was pregnant and she was over there helping them decorate the nursery. And she, Louie got really mad and started chasing Deborah around with, um, uh, a curtain rod. And she was so freaked out by it. Her sister was that she ran across the street and called her mother and the mother came and picked both of her daughters up. And then over the years, when asked, Deborah said that, oh, he doesn't hit me anymore. He's better. But we don't know if that's true because not, you know, sometimes people, they, they don't want to talk about it. They have guilt and feelings about, you know, what's happened in the, in their relationship. So we don't really know if he continued to be violent or if, you know, he stopped at some point. Well, I think it's uh I think it's safe to say just looking at historically mm -hmm. men who are abusive in relationships typically don't stop it typically yeah. escalates or just maintains a certain level but most uh, likely it was uh something that just kept uh getting worse and worse. And here is Deb's friend Lori again. By the time I met Debbie, a lot of the physical stuff that I heard about a lot of that stuff I didn't see because it was before I met her, a lot of it. He was more mentally abusive with her. 
he would do things like say he was going to kill himself, say things like, if I can't have you, nobody will. That kind of like manipulative. I'll give you an example. So he didn't like me because Debbie and I were very close. He bought her this big, gaudy diamond and ruby ring. I was over her house and he did not want me there. She had taken the ring off in the bathroom to wash her hands, left it on the sink. Louis took the ring and hid it, then turned around and asked her where it was. And she said it was in the bathroom. Well, of course, it wasn't in the bathroom because he had already taken it. So then he turned around and accused me of stealing it. This is the games he used to play. And we had a big blowout. He threw me out and, and whatnot, accusing me of stealing her ring, which God, I would never do. I don't remember if it was the following day or whatever. I went back over to Deb's. Louie was at work and her and I tore the house apart looking for that ring. And we both kind of knew that he took that ring, but we were looking. Did he hide it somewhere? We looked everywhere. We moved the furniture, cushions, you name it. We moved it. We looked everywhere. Never found the ring. That same day he comes home and I'm still there. So big fight again. I leave. He starts looking around the house, puts his arm under the couch and pulls out the ring. Oh, here's the ring. Oh, she must have put it here. She liked jewelry, but Louie was always the type that he always had to have the biggest and the best and the most expensive. So a lot of the stuff that he would buy her would be so big and gaudy. And she's like, when am I going to wear this? I'm never going to wear this. <laughs> that kind of a thing. But she, of course, she had it on her finger or whatever, took it off, like I said, at the sink. But no, it was not something that she was really interested in. She was very, she liked to look good. She liked to wear, you know, nice clothes, but very like casual, nice clothes. Not like, you know, I'm going to wear this beautiful gown and I'm going to go out shopping at the grocery store. It was more like, you know, a nice pair of jeans and a nice shirt. She was very casual, but she always looked very nice. It was his attempt at driving a wedge between her and her very, very close friend. And she said he would just pull little things like that because he clearly didn't like her and didn't want her around Deborah. So it's all these little things that he would do that add up that kind of show you how controlling he was. But she did maintain her relationships with people. She didn't let it you know, ruin relationships or break off her relationships. She, you know, despite how controlling he was, he, she was still very close with, with so many people. And her sister in Hawaii said that when they were making those plans over the phone about her possibly coming out there, that she would hear somebody pick up another line in the house and she would say, like, Deborah, shh, I heard somebody and she thinks that he was listening in and possibly could have known that they were planning something for her to come out there. What do you know about the searches that were done? Well, I know that all of those little leads where people were saying, you know, check this trash dump or check this uh, air, air base, check here, check there. The police did check those places. But they've just never found any evidence of her anywhere. And it's just been one of those things where 
you know, all that's missing is her and the clothes that she was wearing. And despite the searches, they've never found anything. I know, I think it was in 2017, they did a dig and it was funny on the news they were saying, oh, they're, the police are digging here and we don't know who they're looking for. And then as they're videotaping live, her brother-in-law rolls up and they're like, oh, look, there's Steve. We know who they must be looking for then because he's so known to the media because he's tried so hard to keep her story out there. And he he bought, you know, billboards and all this stuff over the years. And I do think from, you know, s speaking with him, he does, there seems to be some animosity there between him and Louie. Um, I know that he tried to confront Louie and, and just, you know, it was a nasty situation. And so I do think that he, he really wants to see justice for Deborah because he, it, I, you can tell it just nags at him that he feels that Louis responsible and has gotten away with this for all these years and Deborah was taken away from her family. You were saying that there were searches that were done in landfills and, and dumpsters. Were these all coming in from anonymous sources or was this from uh, family members? Where, where were the sources coming from? I think that it was both. I think that people were saying, you know, check where the dumpster at the Dunkin' Dun Dunkin' Donuts goes to, that kind of thing. And they were saying, oh, there's this landfill across the streets real close. And I think people were throwing out places where you could potentially hide a body and not be seen, that kind of thing. And... I just don't think that they've ever really nailed down a good place or a potential place. Although if the cell phone records from back in 2000 are correct, then it would appear that Louis returned to Taunton from Weymouth after her appointment and then went out for several hours and stayed in Taunton. So, I mean, it kind of, if he is responsible, you'd think it would be somewhere in the area where she would be, but we can't really be certain. When he said that he uh, went to go look for her, bought the kids pizza, and then left, do you think that that is out of character or in character? Meaning, why wouldn't he take the kids to go look for their mother with him? Is that out of character for him, or am I reading too much into it? No, I don't. I don't. I, I mean, to me... It's odd, but I think, in my opinion, I think those hours that he was gone are really key because initially his first story to police was that he was in Weymouth looking for her in the area where she got out of the car. And then you find out that he was never in Weymouth looking for her. So what was he doing? And it kind of makes sense why he would leave the kids there if he is responsible and was disposing of her body. So who knows? But I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Uh, but you know, you can't be certain on that because 
there's just never been any evidence recovered. But also, no one reports seeing her walking along Route 18. And I'm not from there, but uh, the her family says that that road would have been very busy at that time. So you have to wonder if she ever got out of that car there. Does he still own the same car? I don't believe so. Have you had uh, any contact with him or do you plan to have any contact with him? No, I, he, we were not able to reach him. But like I said, um, in the, in her episode, her sister talks about a time when a news camera, you know, news cameraman approached him outside of the Dunkin' Donuts at the dumpster and he really flew off the handle and he just doesn't talk to to media about it. And he, you know, he's really just shut that whole part of his life is completely out. And for somebody who would obsess over his wife being out having coffee in her car with a girlfriend and drive around and around the block, I mean, for him not to care and she just disappears, it's, I mean, it's pretty telling, I think. I think so. Yikes. It's a tragic case. It really mm-hmm. is. It's, uh, you know, on the surface, it, it looks like a, uh, it looks like the story you hear a lot, you know, an abusive relationship that finally reached like this inevitable conclusion, this unfortunate conclusion. Guy is still free because they can't find the woman's body. Yeah. And unfortunately, I see that all the time. And after covering a lot of similar cases like that, it does sometimes feel like if you can just hide somebody good enough and hide any clues as to what you did, that it's easy to get away with it. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.